Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Rosanna Allen-Khan, the Shadow Cabinet Minister for Mental Health and MP for Tooting. Uh, This is the second episode from the rescheduled Christmas special and I'm delighted to tell you that Rosanna fully entered in to the Christmas spirit and even wore a special sparkly dress so she really got into it and um, I think it was only me and her there on the night that really felt uh, any festivity at all um, but she is one of the most charismatic people in politics and this is an absolute treat and um, before we come on uh, to this fantastic interview um, my future guest I mean my god the next show on, on Monday, the 2nd of May, is with Andrew Marr. Now, I mean, that guy has dominated political broadcasting for over two decades, a former political editor of the BBC, and, of course, the Marr programme on Sunday. I mean, apart from anything else, watching that on a Sunday was where I was getting most of my material for the past 10 years. Um, but now that he's left, obviously, he can be way more candid about his time at the BBC, the relationship between politicians and the media, the specific role that the BBC plays in our national political life. I mean, there's so much I want to ask him, um, uh, including <laughs> how do I become a better interviewer? So there's, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm always excited about guests, obviously, but that one is going to be extra special. That's Monday, the 2nd of May. That's the next live show. You can get tickets for that. I've put a link in the blurb so you can click on that. I mean, the run of guests, my God. So the next six shows in order are these people. Andrew Marr. Lisa Nandy, Wes Streeting, Gary Neville, David Davis, Lindsay Hoyle. Um, and that runs right through till July. Um, and tickets for all those shows you can get by clicking on the link in the book. I mean, just absolutely every single one of those uh, is going to be an incredible night, as was this. So, of course, you've already heard uh, the Jacob Reese mogg interview. Uh, Rosanna was the other guest that night. And um, as well as being charismatic, extremely sharp and um, great fun. Uh, Rosanna is also uh, someone of very, very strong values and that really comes across. And there are plenty of people, of course, uh, the art of politics really is, uh, is, is, is talking and solving problems through discussion and persuasion. But Rosanna doesn't just do that. And, and that would be enough, you know. But Rosanna is someone who works on the front line in A&E as a doctor and did during COVID. And she's been out to Ukraine to help refugees. So she has been, she has first-hand eyewitness testimony, really, of the two big crises of the era, of of how COVID ravaged our society, and she saw that and treated people with it, pre-vaccine as well, and she's been out uh, to see the horrors of of war and and help the people fleeing. So uh, as well as being a lot of fun and um, her usual charismatic self, this is also um, really incredible that she's been in both those situations and continues to put herself in positions where she can do the most uh, for people in the most need. So uh, this really is something else. Um, so um, uh, this is the final. I mean, we've had a Christmas special, then an Easter special. Now we're going back to the Christmas special. So from now until the Christmas special in December, um, this is the uh, the end of the um I guess, Christian feast-based festivities. But um, enjoy the fantastic Rosanna Anankar. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! <laughs> I want my sparkles just for you. <laughs> right, are we doing the hat? If you want to, I mean, you don't it's, have to. I mean, they reacted badly when I came out in mine, so... I feel what like... do you think, hat? Do it. Are you, um, firstly, you've gone for a proper showbiz outfit. 
Do you know, I haven't been out much. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to lie. Yeah, this came actually from um, a charity shop, British Heart Foundation, about two and a half years ago. Um, but I haven't had a chance to wear it until tonight. And uh, I actually thought, uh, you know what, it's Christmas. Christmas at the end of the day, we've got to dress up, got to get sparkly. So, I yeah. totally agree. I, I'm genuinely feeling in the Christmas spirit. I, I feel like really... Uh, wrapping it in Christmas has been a terrible idea. You've got a tree. I feel like Londoners really... I mean, where I grew up, people still have their Christmas decorations up at this time of year, so this, this feels normal to me. Well... <laughs> you know what, that is quite loud. Can anyone else hear that? It's quite a fit... Uh, oh, I know, I do like it. It sounds like a fair, a fairground, doesn't it? And you get there and all you can hear is, like, the generators and... Yeah. Smell the oil and the chip fat. Yeah, the mm. ride where you're dicing with death. <laughs> it's good. You can't beat you know it. What? I, I'm worried about the audio quality of the podcast now. I think I might. Is it? Would it be heartless to um, turn that thing off to, to deflate Santa? <laughs> I'm gonna have to turn it off. Oh, to what now? What? You're sending me mixed messages, man. I can't handle this. Yeah, but I'll get. You don't have to read your own iTunes reviews, do you? I have to put up with all that shit. Oh, can you imagine that? I've got that? to take it down at some point. Oh. Fucking hell. <laughs> Hang on. Oh. I'm not sure this is... <laughs> <laughs> You're the comedian that killed Christmas. <laughs> oh, man. Boy, right, you be careful. More than one as well, to be honest. Oh, man. I, he, has, he has collapsed in a sort he, of authentic way. He's, he's deflated. He re- really is. Um, I didn't realise it was going to be such a realistic representation of Santa Claus when I bought it's that It's the cost of living crisis. It's got to him a little bit. <laughs> so, Rosanna, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for the, having me. The last time we were on the show was the Christmas special in 2019. Oh, my gosh. And... Um, you know, then the world changed. Yes, it did, yeah. Um, because Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party shortly after that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's why the whole world changed. Yes, I don't think that was important. Um, but do you... Um, <laughs> are you enjoying life more in Keir's shadow cabinet than you were in, in St Jeremy's? Well, I wasn't in St Jeremy's shadow cabinet, <laughs> for starters. Um, but, no, it's interesting, obviously, you know, seat at the table and all of that. I think it's uh, easier to get in trouble, though, when you're in the shadow cabinet, as opposed to not in the shadow cabinet. Um, and, no, it's good. I love my brief. I've got the mental health brief. Um, and I've got briefs now, in case anyone's wondering. Um, I've, got, I've, got, I've got the mental health brief, which... <laughs> For those listening to the podcast, I'm wearing a short dress. It's relevant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think, you know, mental health has been a huge, a huge issue um, for, for all my colleagues on the front line of the NHS, where I still work as a doctor and I work throughout the whole pandemic. And obviously in all of our communities, and there isn't anyone that's not been touched by the crisis and, and obviously mental health issues as, as a whole. And so, yeah, so I'm really pleased to be doing that brief. Um, and yeah, but, you know, I have, to, I have to watch what I do and not send uh, random tweets in the middle of the night when I'm pissed off at something, you know. And was rap, that... rap on the knuckles the next day. <laughs> and, and just on mental health, how has being a member of the Shadow Cabinet impacted yours? <laughs> Probably quite poorly. <laughs> <laughs> but does it, is it a happy ship? Are you all pulling in the same direction? Um... <laughs> <laughs> there is a sense of collective responsibility, and mm. uh, we are all adhering to that most of the time. Excellent. And, and, and do you adhere to that? Are you, a, are you a loyal member of the Shadow Cabinet? Most of the time. <laughs> no, I am. I am. No, I am. I mean, look, it's great and, and I, want, I, mean, I want a Labour government, um, unlike your next guest who might think differently. But I, I really I want a Labour government, proud to be part of forming policy. It's a, it's a real honour to be on Keir's team and uh, onwards we go. Yes, it would be odd if, if Jacob wanted a Labour government. I mean, that would be, uh, it would be, it would be a heck be of a scoop. Let's, it well, would, it would be, be my first question too. Um, <laughs> so Keir then, as a leader, you know, obviously you, the shadow cabinet meetings don't take place like the cabinet meetings do inside Downing Street. So nope. where do you have your shadow cabinet meetings? Um, right, are we, is it private? Is this it is between, all off the record. Yeah, just yeah. between us, because yeah, yeah. we wouldn't want anybody, you know, standing outside taking notes. No, no, no. Richmond House. Richmond House? Yes. 
That sounds like a sausage factory. What, what it does. <laughs> it does. It's a, it's a little house. It's not really a house. It's a little bit set of buildings, yeah. slash porter cabin style things. Um, porter cabins? Well, I don't know if... It, actually, there's porter cabins near it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a building. It's sort of a bit of a 60s building. Yeah. Just, um, just outside Portcullis House, but protected. Protected okay. by the guards. Oh, I know what you mean, yes. Yeah, before, near sort of Derby Gate. What was that? Huge, someone just someone said, Chris said, yeah, it's quite big, huge, yeah. Okay, so um, the Shadow Cabinet meeting, um, and, and in terms of the uh, nature and the tone of them, are they, are they jovial meetings? No, they're, they're good meetings, to be honest. I mean, I can't really say anything else other, the, other than the fact that if I didn't say that, I wouldn't be in them for much, <laughs> for much longer. But no, I think um, it's fine. I mean, it's just a meeting, isn't it, at the end of the day? Um, we, all, we all have our little names, yeah. little names on cards. So we have our seats and we sit down and we, we talk issues. And how does Keir run them? Is, is he like, right, I'm the leader and this is the deal? Or do you go round on every issue or do people only speak no, on every... No, he, he, he runs it like a, like a leader. He, he sort of makes his opening remarks and leads on the issues. And, but he does, he is fair. He brings us all in to feed in, and um, we, we're, we're able to have very honest, robust conversations. No, it's good. All jokes aside, it's good meeting. We do good things, decide policies that I think are good. And as a leader, um, does he sort of give you one-to-one encouragement like a football manager would? Is he a man-manager in that regard? No, that's not quite how I describe it. I think he has a, um, he has a, a very effective team around him, um, and I think normally any of the help and support that you need you can get from team members, but if you need to contact him personally, of course you can, yeah. And how do you, if you have contacts him personally, how have you found him? Yeah, really supportive, to be honest. When, I, when my dad passed away, he reached out, he was really, really kind. When I had COVID, he was really, really kind. He's, he's very, very personable and nice like that. And what, I'm just trying to sort of get a sense of the relationship, the dynamic in there, because obviously everyone talks about him and Angela Rayner and whether that's a power struggle or not. I mean, have you observed any tension between the no, two? No, no. It's a meeting. It's a meeting like any other meeting. Um, and they sit next to each other and everyone's very, very cordial. Um, and it, it's quite uneventful, really. So he never says, Angela, for crying out loud, I've told everyone what the policy is. I don't need you... Gobbing off, giving it other ideas. <laughs> no! Chief, don't you fucking talk to me like that. <laughs> I'll fill you in, mate. <laughs> that sort of thing? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen. So he feels quite safe as a leader at the moment. You don't think there's any sort of rumblings of no, mutiny? To, to be honest with you, look, I, I had a great relationship with Jeremy. I've got a good relationship with Keir and... It, it feels like he's running a solid, tight ship. Um, he's giving everyone lots of opportunities. And it feels as though we're not rudderless anymore. OK. Um, and then, obviously, you stood for the deputy leadership of the Labour <laughs> You gave me that big idea the last time I was on the show. Yeah. Did I? Yeah, you did. Well, I thought you should have stood for the leadership, I think. Oh, please. I'd only been an MP for five minutes. The polls showed, even at that time, when you suggested, you said, oh, apparently... I came off thinking, oh... Oh, and then it was in the Evening Standard after that. Yeah. Yeah, it was in the Evening Standard. I didn't realise that... Yeah, but then uh, but all the polls showed that only 2% of Labour members knew who I was because I'd only been an MP for five minutes. Yeah. So, yeah, so the polls showed that 2% of Labour members knew who I was. <laughs> Problem. Um, but of the 2%, um, they liked me a lot. So the only formula was... The only formula was to meet more Labour members. So that's what I did. I went around the, I went around the whole bleeding country. Hi! <laughs> <laughs> Hi! I hear if you get to know me, you might like me in your face. Um, but actually, you know, I had, I had a brilliant time, and actually I did, did really well. And it was quite embarrassing, though, sitting on political shows like Sophie Ridge and Mar and looking, looking at your large, blown-up self on the screen, fifth and everybody else ahead of you. And uh, like, so, uh, Rosanna, um, obviously you have no chance uh, of uh, getting the nominations um, because 2% of Labour members know who you are and you're just, uh, you're fifth <laughs> with like 7% chance. And I was like, but Andrew, if just one young person turns on the telly today and just sees that you can go for it, 
then that's what makes me a winner. <laughs> I, I actually said that, cringe. <laughs> I, I actually said that. But it did take me all the way to, like, runner-up um, and taking Angela, like, all the, like, four rounds to... three or four rounds to actually beat me. Um, so it turns out that killing yourself going around the country is not a bad thing, <laughs> considering the fact as well that I stopped campaigning early um, to go back onto the... Well, into the A and E unit and work on work in, in in COVID, and the polls for the voting were open for so long. So, out there somewhere in some alternate universe, um, the voting was only open for two days. COVID didn't happen, and I am the deputy leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what a great reason to say, look, I'm stepping away. I've got to go to the front line, guys. I've got to go. <laughs> I've got, to, I've got to get my mask on. No, hold on, we don't have a mask. Um, and I've got to get my PPE. No, hold on, we haven't got PPE. I've just got to go, guys. I've just got to go. That's how it was. I mean, it was, it was really bleak to begin with. Because, what, being deputy leader of the Labour? Uh, no. No, <laughs> no, just being, just being there in, in the hospital and just seeing all the death. Yeah, it was... Yeah, the, the Christmas special grief edition. I don't know if anyone wants that one, but... Well, I don't know. Pretty People have varied tastes. We'll, 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 I will come on to that, because obviously it's an amazing thing you did, but I mean, I guess in a way, being the newcomer and being the outsider, being the disruptor kind of helped you a little bit because you were new and you were impressive and the more people liked you... Oh, thanks. You know, they, they obviously voted for you. Um, obviously, a lot of Labour members did know who Richard Bergen was and that seemed to go against him. <laughs> I've got to be honest, though. You see a lot of each other on the old campaign trail. Yeah. And um, it was really fun for a bit until we all knew each other's lines. Um, and um, I was, you know, you're trying to come up with new material to be fresh every weekend where there are like so many hustings and you, you're bored of your own self. Um, and if I talked about my grassroots revival plan and held up a pamphlet one more time, I think I was going to jump in the river. But you really saw a lot of each other. And um, I, remember, I remember just being like, really knackered, because obviously I had, had to work on the 2% situation, <laughs> and the others didn't have that problem. They had, like, unions and all sorts. And, um, and I remember just really flagging, you know, what, needing, like, some IV caffeine or whatever, and then showing up, like, super perky. Oh, everyone going, how tired. No, not me! Full of energy! Perky! Perky as! Everyone ready for another one? But Richard was one of the nicest people in the green room. We just got on really well. We were excited to see each other. Um, and then it got to the point towards the end of the of the whole process and all the hustings where we used to we we used to say in fact like Ian Murray I would say Ian Murray like my team would say Ian we'll buy you four beers if you say Richard's thing about a bird needs two wings a left wing and a right wing to fly like so we try and get each other's lines out <laughs> no. yeah no Richard Richard's Richard's a good guy that, so his pitch his big phrase was a bird needs two wings a left wing and a right wing. <laughs> traumatic to go back there no but um yeah we all had lines that we kept using i mean gosh and what were yours oh i think i probably well i tried to i tried new material all the time really i, I tried new material all the time. improv <laughs> <laughs> no, tried, uh, well dawn had her she would sing the same song at the end of hers every time oh amazing grace oh no bob marley no, it was... Um, um, but she did. I saw her sing Bob Marley. No, 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 the higher you build your barriers. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bobby Sifri. Yeah, and I got bored of my own backstory because only so many times you could hear about your own life. Mm. <laughs> well, you, well, that's when you need to start embellishing stuff. Oh, gosh. And that's when my dad became an MI5 agent. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff yeah. like that. I mean, Stuff like that. Really yeah, yeah. No, because I couldn't say that because my big thing was how my mum had three jobs to put food on the table as a single mum. But you could say I was four, jo four jobs, five yeah. jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so Bergen, he would be nice to go, Rosanna, it's lovely to see you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. a bird needs two wings. He's lovely. But it also needs a beak because otherwise it can't eat. <laughs> can't have a bird without a beak. Needs two eyes. No, he's lovely. It's lovely. It turns out he's really into music because I burst into song singing Cher at One Hustings. It was really getting dull. Same old stuff. Yeah. So I burst into song and uh, after that we had a whole conversation that he's, he's really into... He's like, oh, you're like, properly, like, <laughs> proper, proper singing. I was like, yeah. Turns out he's really into, like, music. What sort of stuff? Like Cher or...? I don't know if he's into Cher, we didn't go that deep, but he, he, he seems to like his music and classical music. And the thing with a lot of those lefties, they don't like to share, do they? <laughs> um, 
They say they do. Um, so, uh, you, you stood for the deputy, you have this yeah. amazing result, and now you're Shadow Minister for Mental Health. Yeah. And as you said, at the start of the pandemic, you go and work on the front line. I mean, what was it like? I mean, obviously, <laughs> a lot has happened since then. We're living in a world of vaccines and, like you say, PPE and, and everything else, and masks, and it feels like we now have the tools to deal with things. At that point, we were in a very different position. Yeah. What was it like on the front line? It was horrific, actually, if I'm honest. I, I think there are things I'll never get over. Um, I, spent, I spent my career sort of doing A&E and then also being a humanitarian doctor. I've never stopped being a humanitarian doctor doing aid missions, even while being an MP. Um, as you know, I was recently um, abroad. And um, I, thought, I, I thought I'd seen everything, really. I'd seen you know, war and famine and natural disasters and, and all sorts of horrible things. I'd, I'd even seen, you know, what happens after chemical weapons have been used. So I thought I was pretty adept at managing my emotions and things, but nothing could have prepared me for working in the intensive cares and just seeing just rows and rows and rows of beds of people just like us, you know, who had gone to work driving our buses or at supermarket checkouts or posties, um, family people that easily could have been my mum or dad, you know. Um, and in all honesty, I would leave the shifts. Just sometimes I would just cry all the way home because that sense of how avoidable it was, was something that was very, very new for me. Um, and as part of the family support liaison team, so I work at St George's Hospital in Tooting in the A&E, but I was asked to join the family support liaison team, first at the Nightingale and then at the Royal London Hospital by the HEMS team. I have a really good friend called Gareth Greer who had worked with me for many years and he said look can you come and be part of this team and as part of this team we would talk to families over the phone and pass on their messages so someone would phone up and say please can you tell my dad just to hold on the kids really want to see him or can you please cut my sister's toenails she doesn't like them like it when it when they get long and can you put my mum's rosary beads next to these tiny things that you hold on to for hope and then sometimes we would have families who, if someone was dying, we would be able to invite them in and we'd have to... It felt, it felt brutal at the time, just pick one person to go in. How do, you, how do you pick one family member out of five or six people who've shown up, take them in so they could say their goodbyes? But sometimes we would take iPads to uh, the bedsides when we could. And um, there are some things that never leave you and... I've told this story a couple of times because I think that, you know, politics... <laughs> politics is a funny business. And people think it's, you know, glamorous or cutthroat or all of these things. And it's, it's hard, whichever side you're on, whether you're in government, whether you're in opposition, it's, it's brutal. It takes a massive toll on you. And sometimes you ask yourself why you're doing it. But what I've described as my why, my reason for keeping on going when I get, you know all sorts of abuse hurled at me, or when it, yeah, I end up in the Daily Mail for all sorts of reasons, just existing. I always, I always think, what's my why? And my why has now become this family where this mother was in her intensive care bed, hooked up to the monitors, unconscious, 28 years old. She'd had her baby cut out of her for emergency caesarean um, in the intensive care. And on this iPad, um, these three little faces popped up, and they were her three children under six. So you're holding this iPad, Matt, and you're trying to say hello, and you're in, by this point, we had PPE, the second wave, and you have this PPE, and you're like, hello. And they're like, oh, doctor, doctor, um, you know, can mummy hear us? And I was like, of course she can hear you, and she can feel your love. So, you know, they, they had this conversation amongst themselves. And they said, if we all shout in unison to our mum, maybe she'll wake up. And I stood there with this iPad with these three children who just shouted, mummy, mummy, please wake up. 
you've been asleep too long. And so I think, when I think about my why, it's families like that. Families who were robbed of the chance to say goodbye, who won't get a refund on those experiences lost, those hugs lost, those... Even the chance to say goodbye, that's the thing, Matt, about COVID, it stripped the humanity out of grieving. I lost my dad a year ago, like this weekend, and um, it was one of the most transformational times of my life for many, many reasons, which I won't go into now. And painful as it was, I was able to be with him at the end. And I just think to myself that sometimes that's all that you can hold on to, is knowing that you were there at the end. But for millions of people, when we look at the death toll, for millions of people, they were robbed of the opportunity to be there at the end. And that is, we, we have to hold that in our thoughts sometimes and know that as communities, many of us are grieving and are going to be grieving in a very unique way for the rest of our lives, never having had that chance to say goodbye. And I think that's also why I'm really pleased to have the mental health brief because um, I've got colleagues who are totally and utterly burnt out. Colleagues who have thought about taking their own lives and there are colleagues, NHS colleagues around the country, who have taken their own lives. But, yeah, that's the long answer to your short question, what was it like? But it was, it was really, really hard. And... Obviously, you've got... You strike me as an optimist. You, I am, you yes. are, you're, you're an optimist, and you clearly get a lot of pleasure from life, and you see the positives in things. Yes. But still, I mean, obviously, you're you know, remembering these horrific things, and it would be more than one occasion, I'm sure. How has that affected you personally? And at any point did you think it would affect your ability to not just be a doctor, but be a politician? You mean going through the, the working on the front line. Yes, uh, and also losing your father. Yeah. Um, I, I think the thing that I learned is genuinely that we need to be kinder to ourselves and that it's okay to completely collapse into a heap emotionally and sometimes physically. Um, I was going through a lot with the loss of my dad because of a very complex past. I didn't have the time with him that I would have loved to have had. And then he got dementia very young and he had a form of dementia that affected his ability to speak. So he could, he could understand everything and he knew who I was and who my, who my children were and who my brother was. But he wasn't able to speak. So all of the I love you's and all of the I'm sorry's and all of those things, I never heard. But being the optimist that I am, I learned sometimes that you don't always need words. And that actually, the relationship that we had where I transformed into a carer, essentially caring for someone who I could see in his eyes, he didn't think he deserved it. Uh, but I, I wanted to, he taught me forgiveness and I taught him what unconditional love really looks like. But that took a toll on me, um, emotionally, because the end was very long and drawn out and very painful. And, um, you know, I, I, everyone deals with grief very differently and there is no handbook. I, I wish there was, there isn't. And, but what I worked out is you, you, you either sleep all of the time, you either drink or take drugs because it's painful, or if you're me, you do a very bizarre thing 
and throw yourself into exercise. And I've always liked boxing, but I joined an MMA. <laughs> joined an <laughs> MMA club. Of yeah. all the ways I thought this story was going. Yeah. <laughs> fight a cage City fight gym. was not it. Fight, fight City Gym in Ballum. Um, honestly, my team would be like, are you OK? Where are you? I'm like, I'm in Fight City. I'm in Fight City Gym. Because for an hour of pummeling and being pummeled, you didn't, you didn't have to think about... You didn't have to think about the, the physical pain, the, the really visceral pain yeah. that you were feeling. And to answer your question about how it affects my ability to be a, a politician, I honestly, if I'm honest with you, and I feel that if anyone who's been through the grieving process is in this room, it, it might resonate. I used to feel blind panic looking at, my, looking at my diary for the day. If I couldn't see a point in that day where I could have a 20-minute power nap, I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to have to be awake for a full day, present with my emotions. And that helped me understand what it's like for others. And actually, I think, really, if you are a politician that is, like, really has helping people at your heart, and, you know, I'm sure Jacob has that at his heart, I'm sure people of any party have that at their heart, truly, most, most politicians, you, you try and take your life experiences and help that to enrich your worldview and how you show up for others and how you're kinder to yourself and your team. But I learned that it's okay to fall apart. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Yeah, but you, you've kept going. I mean, people talk about resilience in life, and I think elements of the public are waking up to the fact that politics is very difficult for people. It takes its yeah. toll, there's a lot of pressure, it's very public, it involves getting a lot of abuse. It can hurt no, your family a lot. Well, yes, and, and not only did you put yourself on the front line during the you know, arguably the biggest test the NHS ever had. We as, you know, anyone in this room has had, really, collectively as a society. On top of that, you're dealing with the loss of your father and all the complications around that. And you are getting abused. I mean, towards the end of last year, you were racially abused in the street, the police yeah. were involved. I mean, yeah. how do you continue to motivate yourself to um, effectively try and look after a society that, at times, has been pretty appalling towards you? Love. I think I'm at the source of me. It's just pure love. Even during a cage fight? Especially during a cage fight. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's... I don't, I, don't have, I don't have anger towards anybody. I, I understand that we are all who we are as a product of our life experiences, right? With my life experiences, my life could have gone a number of different ways. Many of my friends' lives went a number of different ways, right? So you have to see the, the blessings. And I remember when we were growing up and things were so, so, so hard for so many reasons. And I used to say to my mum, like, I just don't know how we're going to survive to tomorrow. And she would just say, well, you always have to have hope and you always just have to, just have to trust that you will. And... So for me, I, I thought, if I ever get out of this life, I, I want to I live a life of service. And I, and I wanted that to be as a doctor. That's all I wanted. I didn't want to be a politician. That happened by accident. And, and, and so for me, 
that that's not gone anywhere. You know, you, you might sort of have rocks thrown at you from life, but I just think if someone wants to be racist, get to know me, get to meet me, know what a half Polish, half Pakistani person is like, <laughs> and then and then decide. So I'm going to show you that the way to stand up to hate is just through love. And I, yes, I will call the police if you make me feel scared, and then I will just come down on you because I do <laughs> MMA. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just think I just I remember I remember being in a, t- in a taxi once with a um, taxi driver who literally for 45 minutes um, was really really Islamophobic, and he told me how his daughter wanted to go to uni, but he went to X university for an open day, and no effing way was she going there with those effing Muslims and all that. It was bad. I just sat there for like 45 minutes, and. Um, this was like a few years ago when I was on the way to um, a medical course and he was like, I'm so glad you speak English, unlike these packies. You know, because obviously when you're half, not everybody works it out immediately. And, um, and, and so, yeah. And, and, and so I just... So at the end of the, at the, end of the cab journey, he, um, <laughs> he stops the cab and is all oh, thanks for me. And I just said, can I just, can I just ask, have you, have you ever met a Muslim? No, no members of no bloody one who either. I said, well, I said, you have. You met me. And what I want you to take away from this journey are two things. Firstly, that I'm gracious and I forgive you. And secondly, I'm not paying for this bloody cab ride. <laughs> True. <laughs> What's that? No, actually, Muslims are all right. It's Polish people I don't yeah. like. No, I've, I've had. Before, I, I have been told before, can you believe this, by a surgeon at medical school, uh, when he asked me, because we, we had the masks and surgery, and he goes, oh, you look exotic, where are you from? So I told him, half Polish, half Pakistan. He goes, oh, half your family are cleaners and the other half are terrorists. <laughs> that, was a, that was not a good day. But, the, but, no, but people, people, like, honestly... And he was wrong, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, think, I think my oldest daughter might have the cleaning gene... <laughs> Um, but that's certainly not from my side of the family. Um, but uh, no, so it is, it, you just—you just the way to beat hate is just through for, through love. I really, really, be- genuinely believe that, and I think that's why, you know, uh, look, I definitely think there is a ceiling on where you, people perceive you can get to, even in politics, right? When you have a skin colour and a religion like I do, but the only way to fight that is to stay bloody put and keep fighting because you have the hope that it's not going to be so hard for, for your daughters and their daughters and sons. And, you know, so I think it's essential to stay optimistic because if you don't, this old life, whether you're a politician or anything else, it can, it can eat you up and spit you out. And I, I always think there's more light than dark. You know, it's like one photon of light, isn't it? Can open, can 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 light up a room full of dark, and and I think you just find other people that think like you, and before you know it, you know, you're a, you're a you're a powerhouse together. But you, not only did you go and serve on the front line during COVID and help all these people, you recently got back from Ukraine, yeah. where you've been doing aid work out there. Yeah. I mean, you really put yourself literally at the front line of the causes that you genuinely care about. And you put yourself in a situation where, having dealt with grief, having dealt with the stress of the things that you've seen, you're prepared to put yourself through that again. Um, And the experience you had in Ukraine, I mean, sounded incredible. Yes, it was very, very... uh, I I still think about it every day quite a lot. Um, And... I've, I've worked with an NGO called Med Global for a number of years, and uh, they called and said, look, the Ukrainian health ministry, this is right at the start, about a week into the whole thing, um, the Ukrainian health ministry have invited us to come over and do a, um, uh, basically, take aid to the front line, but to train their doctors on um, mass casualty triage and chemical weapon preparedness, um, because um, you know, I didn't, don't expect you to have put my CV out there or for anyone to even know it. But I have a master's in emergency humanitarian assistance, and so I've spent 14 years doing this work. So, and 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 also many many times as an MP, I've been to all, I've been to Palestine, the Rohingya camps, all over. So this is not was not an unusual call to get 
Um, so naturally, of course, there has to be a needs assessment. Um, and within four days, we were over there. But this was a, this was a tough call to have with the, with the, with the family because taking a decision to go into an active war zone, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I seem to have the fear, the fear dial was just always dialed down for me um, throughout my life. But when you have a family and you have children and you have your eight-year-old writing letters to her school friends to please donate stuff for Ukrainians, you, you realize it's not just about you anymore, you know, the people around you. But I think the decision was taken that I would go with this incredible team and we went, we went, and it was um, horrible uh, because when we got into Ukraine, um, we, were, we were meeting doctors. We, we trained 250 doctors. Um, many were over Zoom from all, o from all over Ukraine, and they were talking about their medical colleagues who had been kidnapped. Um, we already knew that hospitals were under siege at that point, and it seemed as though the Syrian playbook was basically playing out. So um, siege, starvation, followed by chemical weapons attacks. And so we had, we had desperate doctors just saying, what do we do? And if you think about, you know, if you're a psychiatrist or a GP, you know, you're not going to know automatically just because you, you've been to medical school. You're not going to know how to deal with a chemical weapons attack. You're not going to know how to deal with mass casualty triage where you've got like 15 people in front of you and you just don't know what to do. Who knew there were like five different types of tourniquet and that if you don't twist it the right way, you can lose a limb anyway. I mean, all of these things, it was quite mind-boggling and, and we had to spend some time in, uh, the, the, you know, the air raid sirens went off and um, had to spend some time in the bunker and that's when you sort of think, oh, you want to sort of message home, but you don't want to message home because you don't want to tell anyone because... You're obviously going to come out of the bunker, but you've left everyone at home panicking. Is she in it? Is she out of it? Is she <laughs> What's her MMA won't help her there. You know, so it, it's, it's literally... Um, and, the, and then... And then <laughs> yeah, it's skills, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... Um, <laughs> but... Um, and then we rescued a family. We rescued a family who had been shot at close range by Rus Russian tanks. Um, and some of the family had bled out and died in front of the kids and one of the mums. Um, and we took them to Poland and spent a very emotional sort of seven hours in the coach with them and took them to Poland so they could get the, the care that they needed. I had a Zoom call with them, actually, a few days ago. But, uh, I mean, they, were, they, were, they, they, would, they travelled on what they had been led to believe was a safe road and they'd done a recce beforehand, like, like one of the granddads had done a, done a recce. And then they had flags, and they'd written on the side of the car that there's children in the car. And um, basically, a, a vehicle came towards them, and they pulled over to the side, and thinking it was they just wanted to pass, but they stopped, and they just shot, they shot at these two cars in close range, knowing there were children inside. And... Um, the grandma who was at the front, she was young, she was only 60, um, she, she literally bled out in front of the children. Um, and the family were frantically knocking on doors, begging for help, but of course no one opened their door because they could see what happened. So, yeah, it was, um, it was emotional, but that's one family out of so many families. And, you know, it, 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 it's... A very, very tough time for a lot of people at the moment. And, and I know that, I mean, one of the things that's really blown me away is how so many people, like many people in this audience and people in my community in Tooting, have really stepped up and offered to take in refugees and have donated clothes and, and all sorts. Um, so I think, I think in dark times, you, you, you need to also... The way to get through them is to, f is to focus on what's positive and, all, and, and how wonderful people are that have stepped up to help. But you're one of those people. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fact. I mean, yes. you, you are. You know, you, you've stepped up to help numerous times in, in various major crises. I mean, what are the political lessons that you learn from going to Ukraine and seeing 
the carnage that a fascist like Vladimir Putin can cause. And obviously you draw the link with Syria. At the time, with Syria, when Assad gassed children, the Labour Party view was this is none of our business, that we shouldn't get involved militarily. I mean, I, I know that this is slightly uh, before your time uh, as an MP, but the Western retreat from Afghanistan, the years that we've wasted not really standing up to Putin. What's your view on what UK foreign policy should be in places like this? I think that's a, that's a very big question. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is obviously why you've asked it. <laughs> so I, I, th I think, look, I'm, I'm a humanitarian, right? So for me, it's always about preservation of life and dignity. And I think we always have to understand, and I think that's, that's what we lack sometimes in the UK, is it feels so much like an us and them when we look at foreign policy issues like Syria, like Afghanistan. And I think what a lot of people have felt with, with the Ukraine issue, and understandably so, is the reason that our government seems to have stepped up and done more is because they look more like us. I wonder what would have happened if, I mean, and, that, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a very difficult thing to say out loud, but that is, that is the perception, quite rightly, because <coughs> we, we've, had, we've had the Prime Minister and that it's a good thing, you know. He went to stand with the leader of Ukraine, but that's quite a unique thing. And we, I personally think that um, leadership, true, true leadership, requires bravery. And I don't think that leaders of the past have always taken the bravest steps to do the right thing. But I can't, in sort of in one breath, say, you know, what, what we should have done in Syria, what we should have done in Afghanistan. The, I, I don't think we handled Afghanistan right at all. Um, and I think that our response to the Syrian crisis isn't the same as it is for the Ukraine. And I wonder, how that applies specifically to the Labour Party and the left, because obviously with Syria, you had a Conservative Prime Minister who did want to get involved, but it was a Labour leader that, that ensured that Britain did not commit the help that perhaps the Prime Minister wanted at that time. Do you get a mood when you're in Labour Party meetings now, when you're talking to other members of the Shadow Cabinets, other MPs, that obviously Iraq casts a shadow over not just Labour, but British foreign policy, yeah. that the Labour Party is ready to move on from that and accept that there are times when intervention is required? We haven't had that conversation in Shadow Cabinet because it hasn't come up. Because I think what, what, it was, what was felt was that the government was actually taking decent measured steps when it came to Ukraine with sanctions, um, etc. And so the Labour Party discussion around that was that actually now is not a time to be being unhelpful and providing challenge if it's, if it's not warranted. I think that um, any issues about whether to go to war in the future, I mean, look, Iraq, I, I marched against war in Iraq. Um, that is, a, a, I, th I think, a very tragic part of our labor history. But I think it's important to, to note that we do have a leadership now, I feel, that would be willing to to look at an individual basis and and, and, and take decisions as they arose where relevant. I, I feel I feel that Keir is sensible when it comes to that. But you know, have we had these arbitrary discussions about do we believe in going to war or not? We d we haven't had those esoteric discussions. We sort of focused on what's happening this week. What's the government doing? Is it enough? And we certainly don't think that the government did enough. You know, on like dirty money and you know giving peerages and all of that sort of stuff. There's more focus on that. But actually, I think, you know, hats off to Boris Johnson going there. 
I think that's a good stand, good sort of show of solidarity. Um, sending support in is is a good sh- is is a very very good thing. And you know the no fly zone, it's it's tricky. It was, it was a very very tricky thing. And it was interesting because being in Ukraine, that was that was the question that had to be answered all the time. Please 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 go back and tell your government to issue a no fly zone, no fly zone, no fly zone. But you come back and you know that that basically means war with Russia mm. for the rest of Europe. So. These are not easy decisions. They're not, and there are no, uh, no easy answers, but there may be some very good questions out there in the audience. So I'm going to take a couple of quick questions for Rosanna. If I can ask for one-sentence questions, please, and one-sentence answers. Clearly, I, I can see you all now, you gorgeous bunch. <laughs> you gorgeous Clearly indicate, and I'll come to you, and I will have to repeat the question for the uh, podcast, which I know becomes tedious, but there we are. So does, yes, the gentleman uh, near the back there. Excellent. I'll tell you what. Ooh. Well, why don't we... Ch- can you demonstrate... In this dress? Favorite... <laughs> Could you... Like, I mean, obviously, okay. if, it's, if it's going so, to compromise your dress, but... Oh gosh. But don't hurt me. No, it's the one... Right. OK. It's, it's the one where you get your elbow... Yeah. And then you basically go from stand... <laughs> sort of sounds brutal. <laughs> I did it on a sandbag mannequin, i just got to say, for... In case the Daily Mail are in here. <laughs> um, you, you basically get your elbow, you drop your full body weight, crash on the chest. Oh, I my can't God. do it in the... No. Yeah. But in terms of... Um, in terms of... Um... <laughs> Great question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I now do more regularly, I do Muay Thai. Does anyone know Muay Thai? Yeah. Great I mean... cocktail. Oh, oh my yeah, Muay Thai God. cocktail. Fucking brilliant. Muay Thai kickboxing is very good. God, why do I think of that? Because you're funny than me. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Next time I'm chatting to Conor McGregor, I'll slip that in. Um, so, uh, what's, what's Muay Thai? What, that Muay Thai, it's, it's Thai kickboxing. Okay, yeah. but, so then what's the Thai element of... What, how does it differ it's... from traditional kickboxing? comes from Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but like, does it mean the moves are different? I don't know, because I've, I've never done traditional kickboxing. So I did karate growing up, then I did boxing at uni, and then more recently after that. Yeah. But I, I always quite like using arms and legs. And then... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, boxi- boxing, where every time I was in the corner, because I'd sort of trained in karate, I wanted to kick someone. And, of course, that's automatic disqualification, isn't yeah. it? So that's a fail. So, um, <laughs> so, so basically, when, when, I did, when I joined Fight City Gym in Ballam, which is really good... They have one in Moorgate and Elephant and Castle. It's just opened up. Little plug. They're very good. When I joined Fight City Gym, at the time... They're not paying you, by the way. They're not paying me. In fact, I pay them rather a lot for each session. <laughs> but, um, and, and so when... Yeah, I do. When, when, um, so when I went and I was doing the MMA stuff, because of COVID and the rules, um, we had to do it on these sort of type, like human-shaped sandbags. Okay. Um, with pads and stuff. And then... Um, I now do, I don't do the MMA class so much because I, I, you get really bruised and bloodied. Yeah. Um, so um, it's just not a good look from a politician <laughs> or a doctor. Um, so, <laughs> but, yeah. but I now do Muay Thai, which is really cool. And um, you, you, have to wear the, you have to wear the leg guard, like the, the shin pads. That's and cool. The it's really very cool. Um, and my daughters do it as well. They're the only little girls in the kids' Muay Thai. So we're like free ninjas. <laughs> it's really good. They like it. They're like, Mummy, are we having a ninja day today? It's hilarious. Most people's daughters go to ballet and stuff with them, but I'm like, you don't like ballet? Great. Off we go. <laughs> yeah, no, so it's really good. I mean, it's, I don't know how it differs from normal kickboxing, but um, no, it's good, and it's, and it's like full contact. It hurts. <laughs> okay. But it's fun, and it's a great way to stay fit. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I get that, but I like it. I think most people, I mean, judging by this reaction, are petrified of doing it. <laughs> um, it's just I, really good fitness. I, I, it's fun. I'm sure it's great for fitness, but it also, it just seems... Just go for a jog, and then you don't get punched in the face. I do go for a jog. I do go for a jog. Yes, gentleman over there. Do you think there's a problem with the way in which mental health support is administered in this country around things like um, predetermined number of sessions before they're delivered, or things like making people choose very quickly whether therapy, the type of therapy they're receiving is the right type of therapy for them? And yeah. Whereas if you can't, 
here's six sessions, if it doesn't work for you, that's, you know. Do you think there's a problem with that in the country, in this country, in the way that it's delivered? So is there a problem with the way that the state delivers mental health services in terms of predetermined amount of sessions that might not suit every patient? I think that six sessions for anyone that's ever needed help and support with their mental health often isn't enough um, at all. I think it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all because if you're suffering with something like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you, you need, you know, it sometimes takes years. Um, but if you are suffering with anxiety or mild depression, sometimes six works for people. So I think a predetermined number, a one-size-fits-all approach, isn't, isn't the right approach. But I think we are so, well, I don't think I know, we're so under-resourced when it comes to mental health in this country. I think that that's not the fault of those delivering the services. They would like to, to do more. They would like, they're burnt out as well. Um, we have a huge, we have a huge staffing shortage. We have people who, who are really upset, like, like I am, at work, when I think I would love to give people more time and more care. Um, and you feel like you can't because, because of the constraints placed upon you and the lack of resources. Um, and, 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 and I think that, really, um, it has to be a person-centred approach where there's an option, if you start with six, to have another six and another six. Because if you don't get it right with mental health at the outset, then all you do is make the problem worse. Um, and so I can see you nodding. I think, I think you agree. Yeah. If you feel you can sense yourself reaching the end of kind of your allotted amount and you're aware that you're not necessarily going to be able to cope without more. Exactly. That you kind of then will almost feel like you're pleading someone for. And it can, it, I think it creates a dynamic between the therapist and the patient, one that isn't necessarily productive. And I totally agree that for some people, if you need those, that short amount of sessions, that works. But I think it's a really unhelpful way of running it sometimes. I agree. And, and, it, it, it takes Can I just say it's great coming to your guys' night. Uh, this yeah. has been uh, <laughs> it's been just been great to watch you guys catch up. Hang on a minute, I'm surplus to requirements here. Um, I guess to wrap it up, what you would say is uh, people need more sessions; they should get them. And uh, you know, if not, find your local octagon, kick the shit out of some guy, and that might make you feel better. Or sandbag. Or sandbag. <laughs> I can, I can just see vision. this. I can just see this. Dr. Zona Allen Card MP for Tooting says she likes elbowing people in the face. That is it. Yeah, yeah. I would, that, that's, I would Not sum true. up uh, it that way. Rosetta, this has been fantastic. Not just a political hero, but an NHS and a humanitarian hero. There you go, Rosanna Allen-Khan, my word. I mean, I can't imagine how she deals with the things she sees uh, and that motivation to constantly be in the most difficult places, providing people with the help they need really is... Uh, I mean, admirable doesn't really quite do the work, you know, do, do justice, really. It's, uh, she's a remarkable individual uh, and could just sense the atmosphere in there when she was telling those stories. I'm sure you heard it and sensed it through your headphones or your Bluetooth speaker, wherever you listen to this. If you're going to listen to it on public transport, don't blare it out like it's music. I'm sure you wouldn't do that. I don't think this has ever been played on a Bluetooth speaker on public transport. Um, but, you know, if you ever have done that, then by all means, uh, get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, so what a phenomenal guest Rosanna was and what a phenomenal guest my next show will provide. My God, Andrew Marr on Monday the 2nd of May. Um, you can get tickets to that uh, through the link. Or you can go to mattford.com and you'll be able to follow it on there or go to the NIMAX Theatre's website. Follow me on Twitter at mattford for, for all the latest guest announcements. Um, so thank you for downloading this. Please leave a five-star written review, share, subscribe. Thanks to all of those of you that do, even the ones that say, oh, I'm only doing this because Matt Ford <laughs> asked me to leave a review. That genuinely helps. As mad as it sounds... Sounded like I was getting emotional then. I wasn't. I, I ate a bit of chocolate just before recording this and uh, it's just stuck at the back of the throat. Um, but anyway, you didn't need to know that. <laughs> Thank you so much for downloading this. I'll see you at the next show on Monday, the 2nd of May. 
with Andrew Martin. Thank you to everyone who's coming to see me on talk. My word. Uh, future dates include... Uh, I realise I'm terrible at this. I've got the list up this time. Uh, Leamington Spa on uh, Thursday the 28th of April. Shrewsbury, the Theatre 7 on Friday the 29th of April. Nottingham. Oh, Nottingham. On Monday the 5th of May. Uh, Gloucester Guildhall on Friday the 6th of May. That's been rescheduled. Uh, York on the 12th of May. Leeds on the 13th. Canterbury on the 15th of May. Exeter on the 22nd of May. Uh, a London Soho Theatre run from the 14th to the 19th of June and I've added another Leeds date uh, this time at the Wardrobe Theatre on the 8th of July and then Peterborough on the 13th of July so still plenty of the tour left you can get tickets for that through my website as well and I really will go now and then I'm going to um, <laughs> get rid of the last of the chocolate that's still <laughs> knocking around the back of my throat see you next week bye bye